We bring the news. We bring the action. We bring it live. This is 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM or highfm.com. I'm Benji Shulman and welcome to the new Blue Review. Now, if you're listening to this show for the first time, perhaps on our iTunes account or at the Jerusalem Post, welcome to the show. It's good to have you with us on the program and uh, listening in for the first time, I hope, of many times that you'll be listening into the new Blue Review. The format of the show is we, we look at a whole range of stuff. It's basically a Jewish current affairs, politics and arts and culture show. And uh, we keep things light and serious, more serious than light, I guess. And we come out from the Chai FM studios. We are based in Johannesburg. So you can expect from time to time that there will be a bit of an African slant to what we are doing and uh, looking at and engaging with, but uh, generally looking at the world of Jewish politics and Jewish current affairs, and we're excited to be launching this podcast from the studios. But this particular show, we are very honored to have with us as our first guest, Nir Boms. He is a professor from Tel Aviv University in politics, and we're going to be talking about a whole range of things on the show today. Nir, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us on the first episode of the New Blue Review. Good to be here. So, first of all, I think we'd like to start with this issue of Syria, obviously something that's been bubbling along in the international community for more than four or five years now, something which is a, an enormous humanitarian disaster. And basically the entire Middle East and even abroad has been pulled into this uh, fight. The one country that hasn't been pulled in in some respects has been Israel's been trying to stay neutral, keep out of the fighting, not engaged with one side or the other. But we're starting to see a shift in terms of where Israel might see this particular conflict going. And uh, there has been some very interesting movements on this front. So, Nia, you are an expert in this issue of Syria and how it relates to the region in Israel. Could you start off by giving us a broad stroke about where the conflict is sitting at the moment? Well, there's been a lot that happened uh, since the conflict uh, began. Uh, at the tail end of the what was known as the Arab Spring, uh, and then we may remember that uh, the conflict started uh, in March of 2011. Uh, following uh, all these events uh, that uh, started in Tunisia, migrated to Egypt, continued to uh, Africa, and engulfed the region as a whole, and certainly in Syria, uh, the conflict began. Uh, really because the government, uh, President Bashar Assad's government, uh, responded very harshly to the demands for change. Uh, they, uh, they responded very violently, trying to curtail, to stop uh, the protest that started in the south. Uh, that created a backlash. Uh, and, and from there, through a very long sequence of events, um, and that control uh, was gradually lost and many other players and proxy players uh, came uh, into the fold, partially, by the way, because uh, they were somewhat unemployed with lots of uh, available weapons because of all everything else that had been happening in the region, in the Middle East and in Africa. Uh, the conflict has had a number of phases. It's going to be too long to review uh, all of them, uh, but there was a, a number of circles from the conflict uh, that was protest against the government and then the government trying to put a tighter hand and getting the backlash to other players coming in, other countries coming in, into an all-out civic, ethnic, and certainly a proxy war uh, with a very significant number of uh, countries and non-country players involved, 
then uh, we're beginning to see the emergence of new types of entities inside Syria. Uh, some of them are probably very well known uh, just by the names, like the Islamic State um, uh, of, uh, of Syria and Iraq that has its capital still uh, in Syria, although not uh, for long. Of course, the international community uh, was trying to uh, intervene and, and to, to stop the conflict. Uh, it did not prove so effective uh, as effective as an effort, partially because of this idea, well, we need to stop it, but we can't have any boots on the ground. Um, and so we are fighting, but not really all the way to the end. The proxy forces uh, were in some ways where he is stronger. Uh, and then the next big phase is the Russians, who entered the conflict in a very significant way right after the signing of the Iran deal. The Russians have always been there. They've been supporting Assad from the very beginning. Uh, then they brought much more significant uh, air power, military power, and actually had uh, shifted uh, some of the dynamic uh, where Assad has been very much on the defensive, uh, make, making him uh, uh, stronger. And now he controls about 70% uh, of the people, not necessarily the territory. Um, and is gaining some uh, some ground uh, uh, throughout uh, Syria uh, while pu- pushing the, the rebels on the one hand and the Islamists and the Islamic State on the uh, on the other. But all of this, and I know it was long so far, uh, resulted in over half a million people who were, were killed, uh, millions more who were hurt or injured. Every second person in Syria probably had lost his and her home. Uh, about 13 million refugees, uh, refugees and displaced people, displaced are those who became refugees in their own country, um, and about 7 million who had left the country. Every uh, fourth Lebanese is now Syrian, every fifth Jordanian is now Syrian, and that's, uh, uh, I guess, in a, in a nutshell of, of uh, where we are now. So I I would uh, it's a very interesting analysis that you give of uh, the broad stroke and I think most people following this particular issue would uh, know that uh, that is uh, uh, the basic uh, issue of what's been going on there and one of the points I wanted to pick up with you is quite interesting is that you know it wasn't only the dictatorship and the oppression of Assad you said that there were a lot of uh, jobless youth a lot of weapons some people even suggesting that climate change had a role to play in the sort of mess that is Syria now what do you make of those sorts of claims well they actually have uh, some base and it's not uh, a specific claim for Syria and more uh, a broader claim to what had happened uh, at the beginning of this decade and with this dynamic of the Arab Spring. And there are mainly two broad factors that have contributed to this. One uh, is the youth component, and we speak about very educated youth. And we speak about an interesting juxtaposition that is happening in all of these countries. On the one hand, uh, youth are uh, becoming significant majorities, about 30, sorry, 70%. Uh, of those in the region are under the age of 30. These are people who are coming of age. Um, and, and the same token, the more of them you have, the economic situation um, is not picking up. They don't have jobs. And even more so, those more educated uh, are even less employed and certainly cannot find things that are suitable uh, for them. And if you juxtapose these two factors, then you realize that there are more and more people who are educated, 
and unemployed, but to understand much more about why is it that the situation is as such. And they are the ones who begin to trigger some of these protests and some of these uh, uh, campaigns against corruption. And then when climate change, uh, the, the, the region had um, a number of years uh, of uh, very little rain, uh, the prices of basic foods um, climbed up, governments were not able to, to pick up uh, and, and generate enough subsidies, and all of a sudden the, that, that piece also kicked in, and the combination of this restless youth who begin to understand what's going on, who understand that the governments are failing them, and who, on the other hand, many of their families don't have enough to eat and they're not able to sustain themselves and they're migrating to the cities and they're frustrated and jobless, uh, have helped create all of this turmoil. Yes, certainly uh, it is a, uh, a quite a tumultuous uh, position that is going on and uh, still to play itself out, I think, to some extent, although perhaps we are getting towards the end of the conflict. What do you make of that idea that uh, we're on the tail end of some sort of uh, solution to Syria with the fall of Aleppo uh, and the securing of certain areas, at least for the government faction? After almost six years, we seem to have uh, uh, at least uh, alliance of some interests uh, coming from a number of sides. Uh, the Russians would like to maintain the role as uh, the predominant force uh, in, in the region. The Americans, uh, for the most part, would like to work with the Russians, uh, and they have the main interest is pushing the Iranians out, and if the Russians agree, they're happy to let the Russians lead. The other countries are beginning to be somewhat more tired, uh, realizing that everything that was tried so far had failed, and perhaps uh, we should have some sort of an order, even uh, with uh, Bashar uh, in, in, in power, as long as we'll have a certain degree of stability and we'll be able to fight uh, the radical elements uh, beginning of the Islamic State. That's part of the picture. That does not mean that the war is going to end, because many of the people, the groups are fighting on the ground, uh, they're still motivated, and, and they're not going to agree so willingly um, you know, to, to, to call their weapons. But the reality is that uh, if uh, there, there are no other proxies uh, uh, aside of the Russians that are actually willing to uh, bomb and, and use a significant military force in order to strengthen one part of the equation, then it means that the other is getting much weaker. Um, and then perhaps it is the beginning of the end, but even that... It only means that it's going to be another phase. Uh, the big issues in Syria are far from being uh, sorted. Um, uh, and uh, it could be that the tiredness will eventually get people to agree on something. But as we've seen uh, in Lebanon, perhaps it's going to be a, a break in the war, but it's only going to be another chapter. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, we'll have more opportunities to speak about the region and about Syria in specific. You're listening to the New Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman on 101.9 HiFM or HiFM.com. If you are listening live to this particular podcast, we are talking to Nia Bombs, and he is a political scientist from Tel Aviv University. He's a professor there. And uh, we're talking about Syria and what is going on in the current phase of that war. Now, Neil, one of the things that uh, 
obviously has changed the equation, I think, a little bit in terms of what you were talking about earlier in terms of proxies and who's supporting whom is the election of Donald Trump. He has been very, very focused on dealing with the question of ISIS. At least that's what he's saying is in, in his campaign. So far in his administration, only really three or four weeks, a month in, do you think that Donald Trump is going to be changing the American approach to Syria and how it does stuff? I think the answer is slightly, uh, and I'm not sure in a very significant way. The war against ISIS uh, is solid. It's an ongoing campaign. It's a campaign that is progressing and advancing. There is a coalition uh, of uh, a number of significant countries, including from the region. Uh, the Jordanians have just been bombing uh, the Emirates, uh, and of course the Americans uh, are taking the lead, uh, along uh, with some NATO and, and, and European uh, um, forces. Um, Donald Trump uh, had promised that he uh, will uh, deal with this issue of ISIS. That's another criticism that this issue was not dealt strongly enough under uh, Obama. And and he would like to uh, continue the campaign, but uh, that will take its time. Uh, These battles, uh, particularly the the land, the ground battles uh, that needs to be fought in order to get ISIS out of places like Mosul and Raqqa, uh, cannot end in a day. Uh, And overall... Uh, President Trump, uh, I believe, would not uh, be quick to put boots on the ground, something that uh, President Obama refrained from uh, doing. What he would do is to collaborate with the Russians, or in other ways, let the Russians uh, take the lead, as long as they will help him push the Iranians uh, further out of the scene, which is an American interest, also an Israeli interest, I can add. Um, And that, I think, will be the most significant change. But do you think that's very likely? I mean, the Iranians have been part of the Russian sphere of influence for quite some time, along with the Syrians, the so-called axis of evil in that region, one of many axes of evil, but certainly one of them. And what is the chances of Trump seriously being able to convince Putin to uh, put pressure on the Iranians not to get involved? Well, uh, actually, there is a chance. The issue is uh, one of degree. Uh, the Russians actually at this point have, have a chance, have an interest to push the Iranians out uh, for two uh, main reasons. First, the Russians would like to be uh, the go-between and the predominant uh, uh, regional hegemon, and, and for that they need to interact with uh, the region. The region includes not just the Iranians, but also the Turks uh, and the Egyptians uh, and the Gulf states, uh, and what they have done actually is successfully bringing them into the fold, bringing them into the Astana uh, peace uh, um, process. Uh, they are now working with the Turks after uh, a period in where uh, the Turks were very much on the other side of the line. If you recall, they've even taken a, a, a Russian plane uh, down. Uh, they were able to get the Egyptians in. And all of these countries, of course, are arch enemies of Iran. Uh, and if Russia would like to uh, maintain its regional influence, and it needs the Sunni states, and the Sunni states and Iran don't, don't really go together. So what Russia needs to show them is that it, it is able to push Iran out, perhaps not completely, uh, but to accommodate to some of the interests of its other partners. So the Russians are, will try to do a balancing act uh, in, a, in, in where they will try to show both the Americans as well as their Sunni Arab allies uh, that they're able to push the Iranian or the Iranian interest a little bit further away and bring uh, uh, the Sunni states and the other partners uh, closer to uh, the center of gravity in, in relations to uh, Syria. The Iranians, of course, would, want, would not want to leave, and the Russians also understand that uh, the Iranians are the ones that are really doing a big part of the dirty work. 
on the ground. So they, they in, in some ways, need them there. But I think they'd like to keep them a little bit on a safe distance. And we've actually seen a number uh, of incidents in where this, this dynamic is already coming into play. Uh, demands to uh, clean Syria from all militias. That includes specifically Hezbollah, the main one that is supported by uh, Iran. Um, and I actually think that uh, if we're going to see an end or a beginning of an end uh, uh, to uh, the Syrian war, that is going to be one of the most significant uh, parts. And if we would not be able to get uh, the Iranians out, or at least partially out, uh, we don't going to see an end of the war. Yeah, it certainly is a, a key aspect to, to ending, and the key aspect in terms of Israel's interests in the region. Uh, you kind of have skipped over the, the Israeli involvement so far. What would you say, in general, the Israelis' approach thus far has been to the Syrian war? There have been three uh, main phases uh, of the Israeli approach. At the very beginning, uh, we had the uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Barak, who said, look, uh, this war is going to end in two weeks, and it's not our war. Uh, but the main approach at that uh, point in 2011-2012 was, this is not our war, we do not want to play a role in that war. Uh, the war is not being fought that close to our border. And therefore, we can sit um, and watch, uh, making sure that it's not going to get close. This began to change uh, for really two main reasons. One, the war has gotten slightly closer to our border um, in the years 2012 and 2013. And also because we realized that under the fog of war, a lot of other things uh, are happening, like weapons coming to Hezbollah. Uh, and, and then we have the phase of the red lines. The Minister of Defense, Yalon at the time, is saying there are three red lines. Israel will not allow the war to get closer to its border. It will not allow proxy, uh, particularly Iranian um, proxies in Hezbollah, to get uh, uh, established along with other uh, radical uh, elements that are uh, uh, very much opposed to Israel, like the Islamic State. And it would not allow uh, the advancement of uh, weapons. Uh, into other militias, uh, either in Syria or in Lebanon, that would hurt Israel, and Israel will retaliate. And Israel actually uh, did so. Uh, it's, unlike the American red lines, it acted upon them, it retaliated. It had no choice, because at some point uh, it was uh, targeted by uh, a number of these uh, militias or, or, or groups, um, and it had to... Uh, prevent the delivery of uh, weapons uh, to, um, to Lebanon, to Hezbollah, something that was reoccurring, uh, including advanced net weapons, missiles, uh, and some reports even uh, some chemical uh, dimensions, non-conventional uh, dimensions, and Israel had to find itself uh, more uh, involved. The next phase, which is one of the more interesting ones, is the good neighborhood policy. And that juxtaposed two dimensions. One uh, is the humanitarian response that had started actually by Israeli civic society, uh, irrespective of the government's action. Um, Israeli humanitarian groups uh, sent aid uh, to Syrian uh, refugee camps in Jordan and Turkey, and in, 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 in with collaboration with Syrian groups were able to actually get aid and assistance inside. Uh, the Israeli government eventually followed suit uh, and decided to open the border uh, in the Golan uh, Heights and begin to treat uh, injured Syrians. Uh, later on, that opening of the border was expand, extended uh, to deliver aid um, 
by uh, Israeli humanitarian uh, civil groups and also uh, by the government and the military uh, uh, itself, realizing that there is some logic in trying to keep a certain degree of stability and assistance to our neighbors, uh, donate and do what we can, uh, uh, the little that we can do uh, dealing with the humanitarian uh, crisis in uh, Syria, and also create a good neighborhood policy that... Uh, uh, is meant to uh, help distance the war and, and encouraging the uh, more moderate um, uh, parts uh, of the opposition uh, to know that Israel, uh, you know, is there uh, and is there to, to also help and, and assist uh, with the hope that it will help distance those who are trying uh, uh, to uh, establish themselves uh, for other purposes uh, along the Israeli border. Over 4,000 Syrians were treated so far in Israel. The number of tons uh, of aid that came out of Israel is difficult to measure. Uh, I think it's over 20,000, uh, a fairly significant number. Uh, there are other humanitarian operations in uh, the Syrian Golan, uh, including uh, assistance in hospitals, um, and, and, and coordination with other uh, rescue and, and recovery. Uh, and Israel was able to contribute, uh, again, at this point, led by civic society, and only later follow up a little bit by government. You're listening to the New Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman, and we're speaking to Neil Boms, and he is a professor of politics at Tel Aviv University. And we've been looking at Syria, and at the moment, speaking a little bit about the Israeli aspect to this particular conflict, which has been going on for five to six years now. Now, Nia, there's a couple of aspects of these policy changes that you've been talking about from an Israeli perspective, and I do just want to go back to the Russians here for a second. Do they have the ability or even the willingness to stop weapons being smuggled to Hezbollah, to act as a restraining partner in Lebanon, to, to sort of of act as a way to, to not have uh, Hezbollah uh, become a threat to Israel. Is, is, are the Russians worth relying on in this particular respect? I, I think Israel had never completely relied uh, on uh, on its allies. It realized at the very beginning that it has uh, to do much on its own. Uh, although there is a, a, a effective coordination between the Israelis and uh, the Russians. The Russians by themselves uh, need to maneuver between uh, uh, especially uh, the, the earlier part of all of this uh, between the, their own axis, uh, meaning Iran, and their allies, which in this sense also included Israel. And I believe that the tacit understanding uh, was that uh, the Russians are not going to interfere and uh, Israel protect its own borders. Uh, they perhaps could have done more to, to prevent this, but uh, they said, look, you know, we have other more significant interests in this arena. We not, are not able to look at what's happening in each and every uh, point. Um, but if Israel uh, is going to uh, bomb a shipment that goes to uh, uh, Lebanon, we're not necessarily going to interfere. This has changed a little bit uh, following the dispatch of the advanced uh, uh, anti-aircraft uh, 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 systems, uh, the SA-300 uh, and 400 uh, uh, systems, 
um, which actually limited the, the, the way uh, that Israel was able to work. Uh, but still, uh, Israel had found its way to uh, respond when needed uh, uh, with the shipments. And uh, I believe that the coordination with Russia was mainly for the purpose of uh, making sure that Israelis and Russians are not going to be shooting at uh, each other. And uh, above that, uh, I believe that Russia probably had done other things quietly to uh, somewhat minimize the danger, but uh, it obviously did not put itself uh, on the opposite end uh, of the Iranian Hezbollah axis, something that uh, we hope that they will do. Um, that is why also this point I mentioned before about the Russian Iranian tension is so important. Now, you, you mentioned these weapons. Perhaps people are not aware about that. Are, are these weapons that the Russians sold to the Iranians in terms of anti-aircraft? Well, these are weapons that the Russians have dispatched on their own basis. Um, and these are advanced uh, systems uh, that also include very powerful radars that are able uh, to uh, trace every uh, airplane uh, you know, in, in the region, including all throughout Israel, uh, and obviously able to uh, uh, also send a missile their way. These are amongst the most significant uh, systems, uh, but the Russians uh, have actually, are using it, using the system themselves, uh, for the most part, uh, to the benefit of the Syrian military and their own pilots that are now actually flying uh, their um, airplanes. The Russians have been selling uh, weapons, and uh, part of what the Russians are, uh, are trying to do, I believe, is to continue to be able to sell weapons and not uh, just to uh, or, or uh, Iran in this regard, uh, but also to uh, the, the Sunni states, the Arab states that actually have, uh, in, in many ways, more money to pay. Yeah, absolutely. Lots and lots of weapons going in that side. Um, from a Hezbollah perspective, do you think they're going to come stronger out of this war than they were when they started? Are they more of a threat uh, since the Syrian revolution? Most experts here agree that in the last 10 years, of a broader perspective of the Syrian war, Hezbollah has emerged much stronger. Uh, it, it was treated as a terrorist organization, then it was treated as a militia, uh, and now uh, we, we treat the organization as a paramilitary, or really as a military. There are different units, uh, including a small uh, air unit. It's not exactly an air force, but uh, it's a unit uh, that uh, utilizes uh, drones uh, in a more uh, effective way. There are commander units, there are commander structures, and the training they received in Syria uh, is priceless from a military perspective. They had learned how to uh, coordinate with other fighting forces. They have learned how to uh, train themselves in different arenas. Uh, they were able to train their commanders, and they were able to access additional uh, systems, more advanced uh, systems of weapons. Uh, all of these are not very good news uh, for us. On the other hand, of course, they have suffered casualties, a uh, significant number of casualties. Uh, there are different estimates on, on, on how many um, the number getting close to 2,000, which is fairly significant uh, if you're looking at the, the core structure of about 45,000 uh, strong uh, Hezbollah. Um, and there's some criticism uh, from Lebanon, and we just heard the Prime Minister of Lebanon, Hariri, saying that uh, this is not justified and, and Hezbollah is really not fighting uh, for Lebanon, it's fighting somebody else's war. Um, and then the President, uh, Aoun, who came to the defense of Hezbollah, again, somebody who was much closer to their camp. So 
all of that, uh, uh, these are more tricky uh, moments for Hezbollah. But overall, uh, Hezbollah received training, Hezbollah received weapons, and Hezbollah emerged uh, really valuable uh, and, and in many ways saving the uh, Assad regime um, for uh, its Iranian masters uh, in a very critical point uh, of this campaign. And I think this is something that they're not going to forget so quickly. So the next war that Israel fights very well might be with a much stronger, much more aggressive Hezbollah and might have to be more of a full-out war than we've seen actually uh, in the last, say, decade with sort of, if you like, wars but not that much boots on the ground, uh, limited engagements. In order to deal with Hezbollah in the future might require a more concerted military action. Unfortunately, uh, this is a scenario that has been uh, discussed here. Uh, the different uh, reports, uh, you know, indicate significant growth in Hezbollah's missile arsenal, uh, and in uh, not only in the number of missiles, but in the strength and their range. Uh, and this means that Hezbollah could simultaneously bomb uh, a good number of cities in Israel, overwhelm Iron Dome, the anti-missile. Uh, 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 system uh, that can only uh, handle a certain number of simultaneous threats. Uh, it means that uh, there may be more casualties, particularly for the longer-term uh, missile. The, there are some reports I've seen that uh, indicate that Hezbollah has in the quantity of close to 200,000 missiles. Um, that number may be uh, slightly exaggerated, but tens of thousands of missiles mean that they're able to shoot a very significant number uh, of missiles in, in, in every given moment, again, overwhelm Iron Dome and causing more damage. It means that the IDF will have to use much more force and probably uh, damage infrastructure in Lebanon in order to uh, provide additional uh, deterrence. And that means that this war can be very bloody, uh, bloody certainly in the cost of uh, in the cost of war and the damages. It's not going to be so much of a commando type uh, of war, uh, although Hezbollah has been proudly saying that they also have uh, invasion plans, uh, looking at the maneuvering up north and then using some other uh, uh, techniques uh, such as tunnels used by uh, Hamas, something that we have seen uh, here more recently uh, with Gaza. So all of this uh, indicates that the next war, if and when uh, it will happen, uh, is going to be uh, much more intense than the previous one. Some disturbing thoughts there from Neil Bombs. He is our guest today on the New Blue Review here on 101.9 Chai FM and Chai FM dot com. Now, now, switching quickly back to the humanitarian aspect that uh, we were talking about uh, away from Hezbollah for a moment, you've you spoken a lot about Israeli civil society, about you know the work that was done to try and get humanitarian aid across the border wasn't necessarily met with universal admiration from Israeli citizens, particularly the Druze community uh, did seem to have some sort of problems with this because of the people who were being helped and uh, the kind of aid that was being given. Can you give us a little bit of context about the political aspects inside of Israel that actually affected how the humanitarian aid got delivered? I'm actually very proud uh, with our people and our society in the context of this particular issue. Just a couple of weeks ago, we've concluded another campaign. It was the largest campaign 
uh, involving crowdsourcing for the Syrian cause. And, and we launched it uh, you know, a month ago, and within 10 days, we've collected uh, about a million and a half shekels uh, from Israelis. And this was uh, one of the most successful crowdsourcing campaigns ever. And all of that was for Syrian children. In addition to that, uh, we've seen donation centers that were not even called for, created, and tons and tons of uh, clothes, non-perishable foods, uh, winter items that were brought up to them and to the north, collecting diapers, uh, collecting baby food, um, all of these things uh, who gradually are finding their way uh, into the other side of uh, the border. The people who participated in these campaigns were Israelis uh, with the broadest uh, definition you can think of. These were Bedouins, these were Druze, these were Christians, uh, these were Arabs, uh, these were uh, residents of unrecognized villages. They all realized that uh, whatever they have and whatever they complain about, uh, the Syrians have it worse, especially now in the winter and then there those very difficult pictures of uh, those freezing refugees in the snow. Uh, some of them, the refugee camps that are very close to our uh, border. So yes, there have been issues, uh, there have been specific tensions, there have been specific tension with the Druze community that is actually split uh, when it comes to the Syrian issue. Those who are uh, still somewhat more loyal to, to Assad and their families and those who are very much loyal to the other side. Uh, but overall, uh, I think Israel uh, as a society that has an ethos uh, of giving on the one hand and also of understanding something about being a refugee. And we had many, many people who said, look, my parents, my grandparents uh, have experienced this personally. We knew uh, what it was to, to be thrown out of your home and to be left defenseless. Um, we know what it was to be hungry. Uh, this is a part of our own ethos, and we need to do uh, the right thing uh, when somebody else is suffering. And this is irrespective of politics and irrespective of anything else. It is simply the right thing to do. Well, that is certainly very good to hear, and it's good to see that uh, Israel, which can sometimes be a, a, a divided society on certain issues, that uh, everyone kind of came around the table for something like this. Uh, nonetheless, you know, you, you did allude to sort of some of the issues with the Jews and the people being helped. Would you say that Israel has a particular stake for a particular group in Syria? Are there a group of moderates, liberals? Is it the Assad regime? You know, when, when aid goes, or particularly the medical help that's going, is it going to a specific place uh, that the Israelis can, people that Israeli can actually talk to? Well, naturally, this is not a, a completely random process, and it's also a dynamic that has been built, you know, as time goes by. Uh, sometimes, half-jokingly, I can say that if Israel were to uh, choose its neighbors, it probably would uh, vote for uh, Luxembourg. But uh, assuming that Luxembourg is not uh, available, uh, and we need to choose from the existing ones, then naturally uh, the Iranians or the Islamic State or Hezbollah are not the first choice. Um, in, in amongst the other side of the list, uh, we can think about the, what is sometimes known as the quote-unquote moderate rebels. Um, without getting into the entire map uh, of the groups in in Syria, which is a complicated one, um, there is a, a group that is more moderate, actually a number of groups that are more moderate, connected to the uh, southern uh, front of the Free uh, Syrian Army. Uh, the Free Syrian Army is another coalition uh, of groups that have been more moderate in the sense that they've been uh, working uh, with 
with the West, uh, with the Jordanians, with the Americans, uh, with a number of other countries that were more secular or less Islamic in their Islamist and their uh, orientation, and some of them still reside in the um, southern part of uh, Syria. Uh, irrespective of those, uh, there are also uh, community leaders of villages, uh, civilian leaders, who are trying their best to simply protect their own people and their own uh, families. With those groups, Israel found a, a, a certain common language, and part of the civilian leadership and the leadership of the more moderate groups were the more natural partners. Obviously, Israel does not have an interest to work with Hezbollah on the other side of the border or with a militia that is connected to the Islamic State. And with these groups where there was a way to find common language, uh, the relationships have somewhat uh, developed, and eventually there are specific contact people who are getting this uh, on the other side of the border. What's interesting for me is that recently there was, a, in fact, a whole conference that was held on the Syrian issue, including Israelis, including Palestinians. This level of contact with Syria would have been completely unthinkable before the war happened at all. I uh, sometimes say that uh, if, if one could count the number of Syrians that have reached Israel uh, since 1948 and, and until, uh, let's say, 2010, you can probably count them on one hand. And since then, you can count many more just in, around my own Shabbat dinner table. Uh, I've been personally involved in uh, many of these uh, encounters uh, in creating uh, some events, including uh, public events uh, that have taken, including, I think, the event that you refer to uh, here, uh, just a few weeks ago at the Hebrew uh, University. Yes, in many ways, uh, like other things in the Middle East, uh, reality is stronger uh, than almost any uh, imaginable scenario. Uh, and it was very difficult to predict that uh, there's going to be very significant relations between Israeli and Syrian. There are going to be public events and statements uh, and actually collaborations because a lot of this humanitarian work that I've described, especially inside a country, could not have been done without the actual work of uh, Syrian groups and uh, Israeli groups and Jewish groups. And sometimes, by the way, they had to work quietly uh, by proxy until um, uh, there, were, there was a time and a space to do things more publicly. And, and some of the public dimension, uh, which are also the easy ones, uh, received a lot of criticism in different parts of the political map, uh, many protests about why, how Syrians dare to come to Israel to speak, uh, uh, etc., but I hope that uh, it means uh, that we need to cross some of these Rubicons. If we ever want to reach uh, uh, a more stable region, we need to uh, help empower uh, the different moderate uh, factions um, and uh, try to do what we can to, uh, to help them uh, as well. There's a long way, and I only wish that uh, the moderates uh, would prevail, something that I'm not sure will happen uh, so quickly. Uh, but I'm proud of the fact that Israel was able to do some of what was the right thing to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that Israel uh, was willing uh, to help and, and to not to stand uh, idly by uh, in the face of uh, a calamity, a tragedy, really. Uh, from, from a Syrian perspective, uh, it is uh, what they call a holocaust. Um, and uh, I, I hope that history uh, will also judge this favorably, and, and perhaps uh, that could serve as a perspective to something else that can happen one day in the Middle East, uh, that people who uh, were 
known to be arch enemies can become friends and what I call forbidden aid, what we have been doing, uh, you, know, you know, aiding the enemy will eventually help to produce some friends. Now, I mean, I, I'm sure you can't talk too much about the kind of work that you've been doing uh, publicly, but it must be some serious cloak and dagger stuff to try and get aid across the border. Is there anything that you can tell us about some of the challenges and the difficulties about doing that kind of work? Um, I'll start with one of the first stories when we were doing uh, this in uh, Jordan. Uh, in a year following the beginning of uh, the, the Syrian war in March of 2012, there was a decision by a number of Israelis to start the first campaign uh, that uh, ended up in collecting some assistance that was then designated to uh, the Zata, the big refugee uh, camp that was set up in Jordan. It took us uh, quite some time to convince the Jordanians uh, that uh, they should accept this help. It was very, very difficult, and, and they've held uh, at some point for a number of months all the aid in some sort of a storage after it's reached Jordan without keeping the clearance to actually release it. Um, when eventually they got convinced to doing that, they asked us to cut all the labels uh, from the clothes because many of them were donated and had Hebrew letters on them. But interestingly enough, when we were actually in the field uh, delivering these aid, the, the, our Jordanian partners on the ground, another civilian group, Jordanian group that was working with us, was very proud to go around in the refugee camps and tell the, the people, do you know who this came from? This is from your friends on the other side of the border. This is from your friends, the Israelis. Um, that tension uh, has taken uh, different forms uh, in respect to almost everything else uh, that we've done. Often uh, Israeli aid uh, was delivered not under an Israeli flag. Uh, it was delivered under a pseudonym of an international organization uh, that will hide the fact that it's Israeli, although there are some people at certain parts of the chain who understood exactly what's going on. Um, there was a always a tension between the public and the private, and, and I think I can safely say that for every public encounter that you may have heard of, uh, there have been over a dozen that took place in uh, private, uh, and, and much of the work, uh, the significant work, was done away from uh, uh, public eyes. Uh, but I also would argue that there is a certain role for some of the public discourse around it, which is why I'm happy to, to speak about this uh, occasionally, uh, because this is also part of what we need uh, to cross one of the one of those Rubicons. Um, that we need to cross in, in the region uh, overall. Well, interestingly, I thought from some of the reports in the conference was that the people who were in some respects most opposed to this uh, engagement between Israeli and Syrian civil society were in fact the Palestinians themselves, uh, people who are you know, fighting with uh, Israel over issues to do with the West Bank, etc. And uh, they have... Uh, performed a bit of a blocking role in terms of the conference. Uh, what were the kind of discussions that were being held uh, when you actually do suddenly put two sides together that haven't spoken to each other basically in 60 years? Well, you are correct. You're referring again to the conference at the Hebrew University and when uh, Hassan Zaytoun, who uh, is originally from the Syrian part of the Golan Heights, was speaking along uh, with a colleague from Syria on Skype that he brought uh, on Skype. 
a number of Palestinians stood up, uh, was trying to sabotage the event, uh, yelling in Arabic uh, to the Syrian guests that they should not be speaking here in Jerusalem, uh, that this is a, an occupied territory, uh, and uh, it took quite some time uh, to uh, quiet them down uh, and, and getting the security uh, involved. Uh, the event was almost uh, derailed uh, completely. And uh, the discussion that emerged, a very tense discussion or debate or really a shouting match, uh, um, had to, to do with the Syrians who were yelling at the Palestinians, not only that uh, he was upset that they were not letting his colleagues speak. He said, look, you live in a paradise here. You are using your own freedom of expression to prevent mine. There are 800 people here who came to listen. Uh, and uh, with all the respect, uh, now I'm trying to do it in a more politically correct terms, the Palestinians are not the only ones suffering. They are, uh, they, they are uh, uh, tenfold more Syrians that are being killed every day. Uh, the, the Palestinian conflict since 1948 uh, uh, resulted uh, in the death, uh, that's a very significant number, 20,000 Palestinians. But the Syrians, uh, had, in the last five years, lost half a million people. And what we're trying to do here is uh, lie work that is uh, life-saving work. Um, the Palestinians, of course, didn't want to listen. That brings other issues about uh, victimhood and their ability, the, the Palestinian ability to uh, absorb issues other than uh, their own. I think for the Palestinians, every time somebody speaks about uh, the Middle East, not through the uh, Palestinian-Israeli prism, uh, that's a problem because that takes away... Uh, what they think is the only uh, key uh, for the, the, the dynamics of the entire region. Of course, today you can argue with it also intellectually, but you can also argue with it if you're a Syrian uh, and you uh, understand that uh, with all the respect uh, to the Palestinian issue, which has nothing to do with the fact that uh, uh, Assad has killed and used chemical weapons against his own people, uh, Israel or the Palestinians, they're not even connected to that. Uh, yes, that's, that's uh, connected to the radical camps and uh, that, that, that is still out there and the challenges that we still have. Um, it's not an easy thing uh, to cross, but I still believe that it's important to create dialogues and to occasionally trigger these conversations, even if they're uh, difficult ones. And I am certainly uh, uh, planning to continue. Well, certainly the Middle East throws up uh, surprises. I'm not sure anywhere else in the world where uh, such a conference would even happen to begin with, and then you would have the various sides. Uh, sounds like they were debating in a very Middle Eastern fashion, uh, to say the least, in terms of uh, how, how these things uh, get debated in that part of the world. Uh, Nip, we have so much more that I'd love to talk about. We haven't even covered the issue of the Kurds, uh, the issue of uh, what actually might be be the the final status of a Syrian uh, solution. But uh, in, in your words, where do you see the next phase of this thing going as we come to the end of this particular podcast? Well, there are two main campaigns being fought in, uh, uh, in Syria. One is a campaign against the rebel, and the second is a campaign against the Islamic State. Uh, the campaign against the rebel is a campaign that led by the regime, backed by the Russians, backed by the Iranians. Uh, this is a campaign that uh, successfully uh, took uh, Aleppo, and, and now uh, it uh, focuses in the areas around uh, Idlib, uh, a little close to the north, where the Turks are also playing a very significant role. Uh, that's connected to the Kurdish uh, uh, point that you have alluded to, and uh, in the south, which is uh, more uh, uh, 
worrying uh, when it comes to Israel because uh, that's where the Israeli border is. The second part uh, is the campaign against the Islamic State and the next battle uh, is going to be the battle over Raqqa and the Kurdish forces uh, have been training for this. Uh, there are uh, reports of additional training sessions and additional arms um, and uh, advisors that are being dispatched, even American uh, personnel uh, in, in very specific roles that uh, are there on the ground uh, with uh, the intention uh, to push uh, the Islamic State at least physically away from their uh, territory. It's not mean that they're going to be eliminated. Uh, all of that, uh, along with this Russian-led process uh, in an attempt to create a political settlement, a transitional government, a uh, suggestion for a constitution that will make Syria uh, united but federated with additional rights of the minorities accommodating some of their uh, needs, at least uh, at the conceptual framework for a possible uh, roadmap for a solution. Now, coming from Israel, we know a lot about roadmaps and, and how long the road might be. So these ideas may be interesting, but the way to implement them may still be long. Uh, but uh, what we're going to see for sure in, in the next weeks and months is the continuation of the battles against the rebels on the one hand and against the Islamic State. Um, at this point, it seems that uh, the regime uh, has the upper hand uh, and uh, that the Russians are leading the uh, uh, way to a potential transition, uh, traditional process that will keep Syria somewhat intact, but will still create something very different than once was. Uh, Syria of the past is not a Syria of the future. Uh, it has changed demographically. It is ruined. Um, even, if, even if the war ends tomorrow, which it will not, it will take years and years, and more than a Marshall Plan type uh, would be needed uh, uh, to uh, try to uh, begin to restore it. There is a whole generation of children uh, who are traumatized, who have lost education. Uh, all of these problems uh, have not even yet begun to be dealt with. Well, there you go, talking to us on New Blue Review, the inaugural podcast. Neil Bonds from Tel Aviv University. Uh, look him up on the internet. This is not the only issue that he deals with. He's got some fascinating work on all sorts of things. And uh, hopefully we'll have him in the studio again to talk about some of that other stuff. Neil, thank you so much for joining us here on the New Blue Review. Good to be here. That was Nir Boms. He is from Tel Aviv University and talking to us about the Syrian situation. Thank you for joining us on this first podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, please, by all means, you can do so. Tweet us at the, the station ID at Chaifem or myself personally at Benji underscore Shulman. That's with an I, S-H-U-L-M-A-N. And uh, you can even email us, newblueview at com, and we'll be very happy to reply to any of your requests. Uh, until next time, we'll see you uh, on this podcast, hopefully bringing you many interesting people. Thank you.